0: Hello, Artie here, and welcome to something new we're trying out, which is our roundup of some of our favorite episodes from the last year, 2023. So over the holidays, and as this year comes to a close, we're releasing a Best of 2023 series. This is by no means objective, and making plenty of tough decisions to leave a few favorites out, but also featuring some newly unlocked patron episodes that people have been asking for for a while. So we'll be releasing one every weekday, and we'll be back with the first episode of the new year on January 8th. In the meantime, we wanna say thank you to all of our patrons. It means a lot to us that we're entirely independent. We don't do ads or sponsored content and are entirely listener supported. So your support goes directly to helping us make deeply researched episodes just like the ones you'll hear this week. And if you're listening to this and you're not a patron, you can support us at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. As always, stay alive another week, and see you all in the new year.
1: So the logic of the model drives the logic of the intervention, which drive because it is supposed to be like a representation of how people think things at the bottom are. Who are we <laughs> to be doing this or to amat to constructing a world, um, modeling a world for which we also model and intervention, assuming that that world, almost with the assumption, the unspoken assumption that that world looks a lot like the model that we've constructed of it.
2: Welcome to the death panel patrons. Thank you so much for your support. We couldn't do any of this without you. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of health communism from your local bookstore or request it from your local library and follow us at death panel underscore. So today, Abby and I are here with a really exciting guest. We're really honored to be joined by Adia Benton, a cultural anthropologist who studies global health, biomedicine, and the political economy of humanitarianism. She is also a professor of anthropology and African studies at Northwestern and the author of the book, HIV Exceptionalism, published in 2015. Adia, welcome to the death panel. It's so great to finally have you on the show.
3: Yeah, thanks for the invitation.
2: Thanks for hosting me. So I'm so glad that you joined us today. You know, when you and I were first discussing what we wanted to have you on to talk about, we started discussing some of the sort of Weird feelings and interesting ideas that can come from looking back at things that people like you, who have really dedicated your life to studying the global political economy of health, brought into the discussion around COVID very early on. Um, Even now, three years in, when I think a lot of people have sort of lost hope of a kind of... COVID spurring on some kind of new public health or social policy revolution of some kind. You know, we're finding ourselves increasingly, I think, on the back foot, really pushing hard that it's not too late to still demand things like mask mandates, mitigations, etc. And I think it's really important to understand also that as many have sort of become aware of some of these dynamics through covid COVID is not like a one-time break uh, in the the normal, nice political economy of health. The (laughs) damage, extraction, harm, these logics, this is really what the political economy of health is. And for some people, you know, COVID was one of the first times that these systems... And the power of the values that are embedded within the systems and their institutions were really visible for what they truly are. So it was fun to kind of look back at a few things that you said or argued in the early days of the pandemic, just sort of as a way of actually taking stock of where we are now. And as I said, sort of how we move forward from here. So all that said, before we get into that, which I'm very excited to talk about, I just want to kind of quickly take a moment, talk about your work, talk about your research I'd love if you could talk a bit about your book as well and your approach to thinking through questions that you ask in your work. I'm thinking specifically there's one part in the introduction to HIV exceptionalism where you talk about Jean-Pierre Olivier de Sardin, probably butchered that, warning um, <laughs> <laughs> against paying sustained attention to quote saving or condemning, deconstructing or reforming development, and that instead. Development, sort of international humanitarianism, things like that, should be understood as a social phenomenon. And through that lens, you know, description and analysis can become these very useful tools to understand and interrogate these things as social processes, as a kind of continuous production and construction of norms, of ideas, and values around a particular issue that really shape the kind of outcomes that we're actually. Talking about what we're saying, you know, what is the value of a public health intervention or something like that? So, you know, there's this one line in particular in this part that's so good where you basically say it's not enough to only ask whether a program's effects match its intentions. And you note that they often do not. And then you write, quote, nor is it particularly valuable to ask only whether perceived failures could have been averted with better managerial apparatuses, enhanced capacity, (laughs) or fewer cultural barriers. So, yeah, obviously, this is an idea that has really influenced the show. You know, I came in contact with this actually first, not through your work, though I wish it had been, but through uh, a sort of anthropology of disability lens. And I think you capture this idea and, and sort of work with it much better. And so I was wondering if you could explain not just your work, but also the kind of deliberate positionality with which you're sort of approaching the questions that you're interested in asking. Wow, so that was a
1: lot. Um, especially because I was like, what? I wrote that what <laughs> um, it was a while ago, and I I always find it. <laughs> Um, well, that's
2: why I figured I would like. I didn't want to be like. Remember that thing you wrote that one time in the introduction in your <laughs> book from twenty fifteen. I'm like, I better contextualize it. That's pretty unfair to ask you or expect you to. Remember. I can't remember <laughs>
4: stuff I wrote last week.
2: So, <laughs> I mean, same. Yeah, I, I had. I had to write a book to realize that was the case. But um, right. sorry.
4: <laughs> no, no, totally. I get it,
2: and it's
1: so. It's but it's it's nice to hear that stuff and go. Oh yeah, that was actually kind of good. Like that was, that's useful to think with.
2: It really is. Yeah.
1: So, well, no, because I, so that came out of, and and I've been thinking about this a lot, like why, why I wrote that book and why I'm writing these other things right now, you know, it's, it's because I spent a little bit of time working in the belly of the beast. Like I used Mm -hmm. to do public health intervention stuff. I used to do development work and, and I, and, you know, I mentioned that in the book, um, but I think if I hadn't had been that person working in, say, like the reproductive health NGO with five countries in a project and they're all doing, you know, they all have the same goal, but they're all very different contexts with very different understanding of reproduction, reproductive health or whatever, or doing getting warm eradication or doing like. I mean, I work for so many different kinds of organizations that is the precarity of freelance work in the development industry. And the way people who live in the places that serve as the the sort of ground for intervention, they're going to be around longer than you ever will be. Yep. And they see you come and go. And they're just like, yep. yeah, so what do you have? What can we take from you? Like, what's interesting for, for us? And then when you're gone, everything changes. And so, so the question for me isn't like, has never been, even though that was often my job, it was to say, oh, this worked or it didn't work. And how can we make it better? That was actually my job for many, for a couple of years, actually, I won't say many years because I did other things, but I remember thinking like, we're just, we're blips. We enter a place that has a history that has, that has, that understands these social encounters as merely like one of many. Um, you're part of a patchwork system of governance and organization that they can get, you know, that they could choose to participate in. Mm-hmm. And some people have the choice to participate in greater, like sort of um, have, have a greater opportunity to, to participate than others um, or better reasons to participate than others. And, and that's often um, across These class lines. Right. So very wealthy people are only seeing these programs as an opportunity to, you know, maybe rent a house, rent their like extra home to an NGO for like exorbitant (laughs) amounts or their vehicles or they open restaurants or whatever. But poor people are like. You know what? These people said they're gonna give us like a few hundred dollars if we do this, or they're or they're gonna train me to do that, this this particular activity, this skill. Maybe I can hang with them for a year and see if it kind of produces something for me. But you I think without understanding that this is that there's only so much that you can say or do to to make development <laughs> or humanitarianism. Work or function the way it's you know that's intended to because it's sort of it's it's an answer to a certain kind of problem or a certain kind of political problem Mm -hmm. or social problem, but it's not actually the question. (laughs) Like it's it's not the question for almost for anyone. Like everyone is trying to survive, get by, capitalize something, right? And this is it. That's not the problem that this was meant to solve. it's kind of like incarceration. I was just thinking about that. I was like, I think I feel, I feel like Ruth Wilson Gilmore says the same thing about prisons. (laughs) But but yeah, there's like, it's so understanding these encounters, understanding the kinds of sort of social, political, economic systems that sort of pre-exist, pre-exist or create the necessity for such interventions. I think you need to be able to see those and understand them for what they are. And so that's sort of like, my perspective or my viewpoint always. That I used to, so my graduate advisor is this psychiatrist (laughs) and an anthropologist named Arthur Kleinman. And there's a a moment in like one of the seminars where he says something like, and I think it was supposed to be profound. um, What is, when we are anthropologists, we are most concerned about the local moral worlds. Of the people that we're talking about, the people that we're encountering, and so you always have to think about what is at stake for them. And I remember thinking, "What is at stake?" is not a social theory that I could use. <laughs> but now that I think about it, I'm like, you know, I say this to my students all the time: you have to ask, like, what is at stake, like, at in, in any given moment in any encounter, like, what is at stake, and who and who is sort of wielding advantage um, or or. By on what axes are people like sitting on that sort of says where they where they fit into this sort of stake identification? This you know it's it's sort of weird because stakes are also like violent objects, right? <laughs> but <laughs> but I think there was something to be said about how like w- what kinds of interests are being pursued and what kinds of interests are at play at any given time when we're thinking about the politics of these interventions and the politics of these systems that that develop these interventions, that frame the problems and therefore the solutions.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one example of this is like, uh, we use this quote in the pharmacology chapter of health communism of David Barr, who's like a ACT UP member who uh, sort of left to do stuff really focused around like drugs and bodies, doing that kind of NHS advocacy. Um, And David is doing this interview with Sarah Schulman for the ACT UP Oral History Project. And she's like, so what's the deal with like global drug inequality with HIV AIDS right now? And this is happening in the early 2000s. And he's like, the problem is development. We're just not doing development. Right. And she's like, are you serious? Really? Like you're going to (laughs) say the problem is development. He's like, yeah, I am. The problem is development. These countries just don't have the resources. They don't have the technology. And that is what's hindering us from, you know, providing HIV drugs to the world. And of course, the argument that Artie and I are making is basically fucking you know, this that this is bullshit, right? That that really sort of what it what is going on that David is uh, that David Barr is saying, Oh, the problem's development, the problem is like pharmaceutical IP and <laughs> all sorts of <laughs> other things. It has nothing to do with, you know, issues that NGOs can can provide a kind of patchwork for, and that fundamentally <laughs> the problem with these kinds of dynamics is actually not something that can be fixed by tinkering with, you know, our kind of NGOs or tinkering with any of these other charity models for for public health. Yeah, that's
1: that's so true. I, I, I read your book and I, I'm trying to remember that being in there, but I'm also teaching. So re- related point and teaching the last part of the quarter, I'm going to have them Watch United in Anger and How to Survive a Plague, and I have a feeling that this question comes up. in, if it does, it probably comes up in United in Anger because that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's. I'm hoping and, you know, and, and the students won't be listening to this. I can tell you, uh, <laughs> <laughs> not before they watch this. But one of the things I'm I'm going to try to see if they notice. Is the difference between those two documentaries and how they think about yeah. um, Act Up and its tension, the tensions that were in, like, sort of that were a part of the the, the group, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of these tensions were like the treatment action stuff. But you know, like, what what that kind of comment reveals, though, is is that messy sort of technocratic liberal thinking <laughs> that 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 also pervaded the group. That also, I think, caused a lot of tension, particularly for the people who were very much concerned with social and economic rights. So, if you're talking about housing and who and, and all of these legal legal provisions about who is who is a caretaker and who is able to make decisions on the behalf of sick and dying, and the distribution of public goods that is medicines to extend life as you say, it's bullshit. It's not a problem of development, <laughs> at least not development in the way that 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 that's discussed. If we're okay. going to talk about development, we're going to talk about actual, actual yes, IP, we're, but we're also going to be talking about um, the kinds of distribution infrastructures that exist, the care infrastructures that exist um, for delivering a range of care that isn't just about drugs mm-hmm. and bodies. You know, because the fact of the matter is, is the drug is a, is a was a miracle, but it also pe- not everyone tolerated it. Um, not everyone could get better. Not everyone survived. People continue to fall fall ill. Um, and so this isn't it, it. This is also appropriate. I think when I think, you know, Paul Farmer died a year ago yesterday, and that was, you know, always his fight. He was like, you say it's too expensive and you say this thing is, you know, it's not cost-effective, well, fuck you. <laughs> you wouldn't say this about your mom or your dad or your cousin or your brother. So why are you saying it about Africans? Um, you know, and he called people out and he said, oh, you said they can't tell time. Yeah, so, so yeah, of course, Sarah Schulman was correct to like, be aghast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah. The sort of ghoulish insistence that if only they could get their shit together, these backwards for people. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's facile. And I think, but I think it's like I said, it's so easy to fall into that, you know, under those, under these circumstances. like, oh, well, if you can just sort of add, like, if you can define the problem as a development problem, then you've already answered the question about, like, you've already provided the solution.
4: Oh, mm. that's so that's so true. I've just been like fervently agreeing this whole segment because I don't even think it's just, you know, the field of development about which I know very little. I I feel like everything that you have uh, said applies to U.S. public health. You know, like no one no one needs the answers to these questions. No one really needs these interventions. It would be I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, it's like the ones they need aren't on the table. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. The ones they need aren't on the table. And like public health, I'm thinking of this because U.S. public health loves framing. And I think this is structural. You know, I'm saying loves, but it's not just like a preference. Um, U.S. public health loves framing problems as problems of education. Right. Like if we can just educate people enough about, you know, whatever health thing, then that's good enough. And if we deliver enough like units of education, then like we've hit the metric. And I think uh you know, again, I you know, I'm only sort of intimately familiar with the mechanisms of like awarding uh research grants like within kind of the US system, but like that's what it is. You know, like if you're asking a public health question, <laughs> you're probably asking a question that's about like an education intervention in some way and you've already answered the question. Right.
1: You you just have to say oh is the knowledge there no it is not yeah exactly <laughs> is, is the attitude there no no it is not we could, but we could get there. you know it's really funny though and 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 <laughs> is is and I remember I so I took it's this was in the late nineties I took this health behavior class. And I, the fact that I still remember it is probably, it's a testament to the dude, right? Um, Bill (laughs) Rutkowski. But I remember thinking, we actually had to sit down and learn all the models. We had to learn all of the sort of psych, social psych models about like going from knowledge to action or whatever. I know it's real fun. (laughs) It's, it's. It's so seductive, though, like the all the circles and the arrows, you're like, yes, if only I can move person from this circle to that circle with yeah, arrows. this chart is real, it represents
4: <laughs> something real in the real world.
1: <laughs> right. And but what I remember, though, and I find this is why I'm I'm, I'm laughing is because like, so the first models, I think, were done in the 70s or whatever, you know, they're like health belief. Maybe it was later, but they taught, you know, they, but every single modification of the model got a little bit more social. Like they'd be like, okay, it's not just enough to go from knowledge, attitude, behavior, right? It's not just enough to think about this as this um, sort of chain, causal chain. But what if we talk about like peer networks and peer groups? Okay, let's, okay, that's social. Yes, yes, yes. And so, and then they're like, but how about, but what happens if like poverty? And they're like, oh, oh my goodness. Econ, econ, econ. And they're just like, yeah, like poor, they're just poor. Okay. Yeah. Um, And then they're like, well, what if, and they sort of kind of kept putting stuff on, but what everything they kind of kept putting on was just a layer of descriptive mode that had no, it's merely like a descriptive container, Mm -hmm. not necessarily an, an, an alterable, like a, it's not, it wasn't necessarily something to be changed. It's just something that needed to be named so that it might be named, mm-hmm. perhaps a, a, accounted for. But I'm not sure there was ever, a, or at least not in the, the ways that I learned, that any way to kind of address what would actually be structural problems, right? Like you, you might say poverty, but what you mean is this person doesn't have enough money for this intervention. Mm-hmm. So let's just give them $50 right. to, get, mm-hmm. to get them from, to, to like incentivize X behavior because it's, it's, it's getting to that next arrow, the getting that, moving that arrow, like getting from box to box, that's the most important thing. So the logic of the model drives the logic of the intervention, which drive because it is supposed to be like a representation of how people think things at the bottom are, Mm -hmm. but it's also circumscribed by the intervention being the world, <laughs> you know, like the world, the world, the world that that needs intervention, the uh, world subject to intervention, when in fact it is not right. It is the map. It is not the territory. And and that's the thinking. Like, I remember we we, you know, a bunch of like 20 year olds <laughs> were developing like health projects, health interventions for 90 year olds because the guy was also um. A gerontologist, right? So, so we were like, "Oh, there's there's an outbreak of chlamydia at the nursing home." Like, however, well, we, you know, these are easy problems, actually. Yeah. <laughs> just like old people having sex a lot, like, is is an easy problem to address. You just like give them some antibiotics and tell them to use condoms. But um, <laughs> and dental dams. <laughs> <laughs> I love not that. Thinking, not thinking, at least, about like how a 90 year old, someone born in like. <laughs> 1910 or whatever (laughs) (laughs) thinks about any of this stuff right they're all like no this is actually my time to get laid like that um so we you know like I remember having these kind of kind of conversations and thoughts like who are we (laughs) to be doing this or to a map to constructing a world um modeling a world for which we also model and intervention, assuming that that world almost with the assumption, the unspoken assumption that that world looks a lot like the model that we've constructed of it. Mm-hmm. And, 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 therefore the actions that we take on behalf of like the, the sort of logics and assumptions of that world will somehow produce the outfa- the outcomes and the effects that we, we intend. Um, even if people are sort of pesky and difficult and challenging.
4: Yeah. 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 Like there's um mm-hmm. I don't know, I see this tendency kind of all over science, but it's like, okay, as soon as someone has thought up a conceptual model, it gets totally reified as not only a real process, but like a deterministic process, right? So like, Mm -hmm. if we, you know, we're, we're measuring, you know, that we're moving people from bucket A to bucket B, but because of how we've drawn the diagram of buckets, you know, that allows us to say, Mm-hmm. Well, we know that we're, we're intervening in this problem. We're improving on this problem because we know that people go from like bucket B to bucket C, even though like all, all we've measured is getting them to bucket B, but like, that's good enough. Anyway, sorry. I'm getting really into the weeds <laughs> you're, of you're like, getting I'm... into the
1: modeling weeds, Ugh. but, but the, it could the get so is, much worse, you know, <laughs> but we do, but we, we, I mean, the truth is, is we, we make models. It doesn't matter yeah. if we're, if they're quant, if they're supposed to be like deterministic, um, disease models, like it actually doesn't matter. <laughs> so, so I remember describing, so another anthropologist who works in Sierra Leone, uh, very, a much more senior anthropologist than I, who's a good friend, um, and had sort of seen, she, she studied like witchcraft or whatever. So she was, <laughs> so when I told her, oh, this is how development projects work. And this is the model, like, this is sort of how we structure the logic of of, of the intervention. And she sort of looked at me like, whoa that is so like you know like what
3: i was like yes there are these
1: inputs and then there are outputs and then there are outcomes and then there are impacts and she was like what that's crazy like she was sort of like you know, i'm like you talk about witchcraft in the 17th century like what <laughs> <laughs>
3: like,
1: but she was just like it's like magic you know it you is, kind of, yeah you put some stuff in and then you expect it to come out and then it's supposed to produce other stuff like what is this alchemy
2: well and yeah called health <laughs> equity <laughs> sorry Abby, i didn't mean to cut you off
4: no i was just gonna say alchemy is exactly the word that that i was i was kind of searching for and i mean i feel like i've described the process of like again just speaking from my own lane you know doing kind of like epidemiologic You know, quantitative work or whatever, I have described epidemiology as alchemy with like a less developed conceptual foundation.
1: (laughs) 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 No science, just just vibes,
4: just Uh.
2: vibes. (laughs) (laughs) Which actually, this is maybe like a great uh, way to sort of move to our first COVID specific thing. Um, Mm -hmm. I pulled a quote from you from uh, 2020. Uh, This is from May 2020. Uh, it's usually the time the like temporality of it is like what hits me and makes my stomach flip the most often is like sometimes how early some of these things are happening. Um, and you're giving an interview, you're talking to the elephant and you're talking about the problems in the early U.S. COVID response. And you're talking about how they're more due to decades of austerity versus a kind of shortage of durable medical equipment like ventilators or a shortage of PPE and for context like if folks don't remember back in the early months of the pandemic in the United States there was a big conversation around the CDC saying don't wear N95s because we don't have enough of them and we need to save them for folks who Our medical workers in the WHO early on sort of made these decisions about economic availability and and sort of global supply. And so one of the big narratives that's like going on kind of early in the pandemic is this discussion of like, do we have enough of the medical stuff? Like, are we going to have all the stuff we need? And really kind of the bigger question actually was... (laughs) have we gutted the system to such a point that we no longer have a way to respond in just in the way that we've set up the way that we manage our own sort of structural behaviors. And so you say, quote, part of my research is about metrics. And so if you make your own report card, if you're the designer of your own rubric for grading, then often you are the person who does the best on your own. Let's just be real. If your metrics are the ones you set, and that's often the case. <laughs> um, at some point, when those metrics become benchmarks that you impose, those are the things that you strive for for preparedness, but they might not actually measure what you actually need to be prepared in the real world. Sorry, that was like paraphrasing from a, a, an audio interview or video interview that you did, but like, you know, you're talking about this idea here of. And this is something that I think we've we've seen over and over and over throughout the pandemic. We've described this on the show as sort of a process of moving the goalposts of various metrics, whether that's mm. um, different things like thinking through uh, public communication systems like the community level system, uh, transition from the community transmission level system. And that also involves some shift in the kind of mask l- framework. But there are all these kind of ways that that kind of shift in masking was subsumed by, like, a lot of discussion over the change in calculations and the change in metrics. And there was a kind of outrage that we were instituting these metrics that didn't reflect reality. And one of the things that we were sort of trying to push here, and which, you know, you were pushing in May of 2020, is that part of the problem is not, like, that this one instance we're setting metrics that don't reflect reality. It's that the U S is always making its own scorecard. And often we make a kind of global scorecard and we're, we're sort of at the downstream of that, we're ending up solving problems that are like completely different than the things that we're sort of purporting to be solving. Like, you know, the priority in terms of program design or intervention Mm -hmm. is you know, making those connections with the rich people who want to rent out their house to the NGO like that becomes the, the priority is over like kind of delivery of services or being able to get people the things they they need that is supposedly the point.
1: Yeah. So there's a lot there. So um, I think this is. Wow. OK, I. I totally remember this elephant interview. I, I think it was cool because I was happy. The interview was was um, by a Kenyan scholar, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, who was going, yeah, this is what's going on here. <laughs> like what's yeah. going on with you guys? Um, and and so one of the things that I want to say about the metrics is I think in, in fact, we were talking about that report. So there was a report card, right? Like I think it was supposed to be a global one. It's supposed to be like this yeah. whole thing about like, who is the most prepared? And like, <laughs> I think the US was like number one. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> We're number one. Yeah. Um, USA. USA. <laughs> uh, and I remember when I first saw that report card, I think I even saw a report card before 2020. And I was like, but how can this even be when we know that, yeah, we run the scenario every few months or whatever. <laughs> oh but we also know that um, decisions are made, like, and those decisions are things like, you know what, we should have a million masks in storage, but it costs a lot to keep that a lot of masks in storage or,
3: you know, so we're not, we're just
1: not going to do it because that saves us a little bit of a coin, right? Right. Um, And then there are all of these, you know, like even the ventilators thing, right? Like, so um, those, but so I was like, how is it, how can it be? And, And I was, but I was also trying to say, yeah, like it's really easy to be the most prepared when you basically hold yourself, as the gold standard, right? right? You go, you go. Oh, um, you should have a plan, a preparedness plan. Do we have a preparedness plan? Yes, we do. Great, check ten, <laughs> ten right. points. Um, do you? Do we have a system in place for for why? Yes, we do. We have the finest agency in Atlanta. Yes, okay, check. Um, and so I could, you know, they're all the, you know, I, I should have looked at the the specific um, index. But my knowledge about how these such metrics are are done anyway, I know that what happens is we say, well, we have this thing and this is sort of the ideal way to do this. And in fact, that's what the global health security agenda looks like. It's sort of like this suite of options for being prepared. And I remember looking at it and this was after having many like robust kind of yelly conversations with Paul Farmer and being like, you know, I was because he so here the backstory is um, when Ebola struck in, in West Africa in 2014, um, he would just happen to be there for the surgery thing that I was supposed to be there for. And one of the surge, you know, a few of the clinicians who were at the meeting, Sierra Leonean clinicians who were at the meeting, were like, Yeah, so like we're still dealing with Ebola, like, and we have this plan, but we're thinking that we should. Think think differently, particularly when it comes to surgery. All these different things, right? And there's this moment where you know Paul's in the room with a bunch of like white folk, probably, and <laughs> and you know they're ever ever like MSF or whatever. Oh, I, I usually am not supposed to. Back then, he would say, "Oh, we won't name the organizations that we have conflict with." And he'd be, and you know, and then Jim Kim would say something like, "Oh, you mean that it? I won't say its name, but it's basically these clinicians who do things without." lines between territories. <laughs> and, and, and so, yes, that's message. But there's a, I, um, there's a moment where they're all kind of trying to think of how to prevent Ebola, how, like how to keep too many people from dying. So yeah, you have these sick people, but you kind of just want to isolate them from everyone else. You don't necessarily want to treat them in the most aggressive fa- fashion, because it, it endangers the clinician, right? Which that sounds cruel and wrong. And it is, it. It is right? You're supposed to be able to provide excellent care for people who are sick because maybe, oh, they might survive. Um, and so Paul says to this group of people, he says, so have you guys come up with like a plan for treating people? And he said, everyone sort of looked at him like he was crazy. <laughs> yeah. He, I mean, he was just like, I didn't think he's like, I it did not in this is, this was a person who's very well-versed in, in all of the stuff that he, you know, like in the stuff that he critiqued, he, you know, he, he knew that this was a possibility, but I don't think he fully fucking knew that it was a possibility that people were going to be sitting in the room, just trying to figure out how to fucking like create a line between the sick people and the, and, and the, and the well people mm-hmm. and let, and letting the chips fall where they may.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, um and so, I think there's a point to this. What was the point? <laughs> I mean, besides you know, everyone's awful, and the the point was um, not only just like sort of the metrics, but but the and and the self-aggrandizing and the and the, you know sort of collar popping that was happening around preparedness, but the the situation in which all of that could occur, which was in fact for all of this the sort of epidemic theater that we had. That the that, that government leaders had had gone through, and I'm talking about local, county, city, state, federal, for all of the the lip service, for all of the 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 concern that people had, there was just too too deep a history of gutting yes. public institutions and gutting and 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 the global health security agenda is fundamentally bullshit because when I was mm-hmm. looking at it. I was like, okay. So after having these conversations with Paul, I was I was looking at the the thing, and I was like, there's seven little. It's like I said, it's a suite of interventions, and or 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 ideas. What they call them, pillars. Pillars, actually. yeah. <laughs> they call them pillars. We I love to call
4: things pillars. Pillars. I know they hold shit up, right?
2: Uh, it's <laughs> how it's how you get from from circle to circle with an arrow. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Architectural integrity.
1: So each they had all these pillars. And, you know, they're like, there's like, even, I don't even know if the pillar is police, but it might as well be, <laughs> you know, it's sort of like, so yeah. you know, they have like, they're like, what yeah. is the role for the military and the police? And I'm like, there should be no role actually. But, yeah. To disappear. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> Abolish them. Fuck them. In fact. um, So there's that piece. There's like all, you know, they have all this thing about like infrastructure and, you know, there's like a whole thing. And I'm like, but where's the care? Where's the treat? Like, where's the treatment? <laughs> You know, like that part actually also mattered because the more people who survive, I mean, sadly, more people who survive, but more people would turn up if they were sick. It meant more, you know, like you don't want to necessarily be legible to the state. But when you're sick, you know what? It'd be nice to be able to say, hi, I I need, I am I am ill with Ebola. Please help me so that I don't die, but also so that I don't spread this to my son, daughter, grandmother, whatever. And so, you know, I look at it and they have this thing called medical countermeasures, which is essentially like and I think I can't remember who the I think is a sociologist or political scientist, um, Stefan Alba, who says, um, who talks about the sort of um, the medicalization of security. You know, everyone talks about the securitization of medicine, but very (laughs) few people do people. And he talks about like. The idea, basically, it's the idea that 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 the population in the sort of Foucauldian sense is willing to ingest medicines or take vaccines to sort of um, protect the arsenal, you know, like to, mm-hmm. to kind of fort- is fortify the population, and so it becomes this this another um, means of arming.
4: Society must
2: be defended. Am I right? right. <laughs> I mean, there are some people that take this approach to COVID advocacy and they say, like, maybe people would be convinced if they do this in the name of nationalism and security and, you know, making sure to be like a strong, good worker for.
4: Oh, yeah. The state, I've seen you know? I've seen the argument that COVID uh, from I think, you know, people that would identify themselves as, as liberals. But I've definitely seen the argument that COVID that our COVID policy in the U.S. is. Weakening the United States relative to our <laughs> geopolitical enemies, which like oh my I don't <laughs> that I is don't so know that this. is a fascinating take, but I
1: can see it. Like I, I totally I can, get it. It's yeah, like, it's like oh, you, it's 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 like this like weird eugenics. It's it's eugenics, right? It's right. like oh, you're weakening the blood, you know? You're,
4: yeah, yeah, because
2: yeah, it's like the continued threat of the survival of the nation is at stake based on like biological phenomena that we can't control. And we have to act to eliminate, remove from society and sort of wall off.
1: The national body is at stake. See, Arthur knew what he was talking about.
4: <laughs> <laughs> well, what I think is um, is really interesting in this like discussion is it, this just keeps coming up again and again, like the austerity is kind of the hard structural principle that shapes everything Every type of COVID advocacy has to like navigate the landscape that this like austerity creates. Yeah. And like, mm-hmm. I I definitely remember, like, I don't remember when this was, but I remember at some point pretty early in the pandemic, I was tr- screaming at anyone who would listen, which at that time was hardly anybody that like, even, you know, this like austerity, all of all of these decisions that have been made over these you know past 4 or 5 decades whatever about public health and like how we're going to do public health in the US that affects the the data itself right like the data is a social process that is related to this like austerity principle you know what i mean in these governance decisions Absolutely. because you yes. know there were low you know i was i was i i distinctly remember i probably screamed it at, at b about this like many many times <laughs> um but like in places where, you know, this came up a lot in the debate around schools, but it's really for anything like low covid case numbers. It's Ugh. like, are the cases really low or we does the public know. health department not have enough contact tracers? They don't have any people. So yeah, I knew this is
1: where you were going. And I, <laughs> I remember having this. Co- so one of my friends is an I.D. doc at University of Chicago. And you know, she's an old friend, like college friend. And she she's like, you have friends at partners in health, right? And I was like, yeah, dude, because she, she had heard <laughs> that they were doing this contact tracing situation. And so I, you know, I, you know, texted Paul. He likes you know, next thing I know, I had I had her on a call because she was trying to do it amongst her patients. Um, but she also had a position at Illinois Department of Health.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: So she she got sort of pulled into it. I'm still like, not a hundred percent sure how that works. Cause I was like, who pays your salary? And like, <laughs> How do you see patients? And why don't they have a fucking, Why don't study full time. Like yeah, what is the problem yeah. here? Yeah. And so as we were sitting with the, we, so we had a meeting with sort of the, the kind of social side of this group, but also the tech folks, right. The database guys. And there was a moment where like, you know, we're talking and I say something like, Okay, well, how does the city of Chicago collect data? She was trying to do this contact, and, and I said, and then I said, and she's like, oh, that's a funny thing because Cook County does something different, and I was like, what?
3: <laughs> and then she said, and the
1: so does Illinois Department of Health, and I said, what? <laughs> and we're like all three, right? Like where mm-hmm. we, where we are, we're like Chicago, Cook County, and we're so we're city, we're county, you we know, state, and so, and of course there's more to Cook County than Chicago, but we won't go there right now. And so, but all of the systems were different and all of the, so all of the systems, so none of the systems could, we had to kind of figure out how to plug them into each other. So that was like one of the conversations, like how do we sort of these two or three mismatched data collection, data entry systems. And then so on top of it was so funny. And then on top of that we were like, well, who do, I actually I, I knew the answer, but I needed them to confirm it. I was like, who who is actually responsible for these databases? And they're like, "Oh, some company they had a contract with." And I was like, "See?" Yep. <laughs> See, that's mm-hmm. I was. I had to explain to people like that is what neoliberalism is actually. Yeah, like, it's not exactly. Even, it's like I was like, if you want, if, you, if you're confused about what it is, because everyone's <laughs> like, oh, this was also a time when like all of the like annoying pundits were like, you keep using neoliberalism, but we don't know what it it is. It's anything you don't like, and I was like, no, actually, it is very much this thing where your public institutions no longer do any of their own fucking work; mm-hmm. it's outsourced. Yep. Exactly and because it's cheaper because the the city doesn't have to pay benefits to X like a company hires these people, they do all of that mm-hmm. and that and and then what happens when the shit hits the fan during a sort of a uh, health crisis like the one we were experiencing
2: mm-hmm.
1: And yep. it's it sort of, it's a funny thing to watch that click for the people who are like, oh, you just say neoliberal, what do you mean? You don't like it.
4: Yeah, <laughs> it's like, no, 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 no. it has a real impact. It has an impact. It has Get an impact. David Harvey on the phone right now. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I think it's actually kind of telling. We saw some of that fall away as COVID continued, right? And some of the stuff was kind of like harder to explain away in the kind of YIMBY framework anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I just, a lot. I think...
1: there's a lot it's interesting to think about too though how suddenly people became like really aware of things that they had no idea Mm -hmm. about before like people still don't actually know what public health is i know Mm -hmm. that but it was sort of funny to be like oh people are like oh is that a public health person they just they still think every epidemiologist is an epidemiologist you know like it, it has like they don't know about the specialties they don't know about all of the sort of weird data differences and, and methods and stuff, which is fine, whatever they don't, they shouldn't have to. In fact, they wouldn't even have to be doing any of this work if If if, if it worked. (laughs) Right. Exactly. You don't, public health is one of those things that you don't know it exists until it fails. And, and that's how it should be. It should be infrastructure. Right. Um, And it's, and it's not. And so, yeah, it's like a really interesting thing. And, and, you know, my students, God bless them um they're still in this moment because we only have a quarter where they're still like but if only they had used the data
3: oh, and I was like oh. and I was
1: like I was like have you been sitting in class like come on <laughs> yeah. and you know their kids in the classroom are like stu- students not kids students in the class go, I wait, but what if like what if no sit with me here <laughs> <laughs> every test that's taken at home is not reported. And they're like, yep, yep. And this is how I also disagree with your raw data, you know, point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it's sort of like, yeah, there's still that like idea that there is a, a sort of objective data driven or whatever evidence-based mm. something. And I'm like, no, we just talked about socio-technical assemblages. I know they, there's, <laughs> I uh, yeah, I know. We, we So do you still think <laughs> now that you've, kind of walk through what these processes look like. Do you think that you can actually say something like data driven, evidence based,
4: raw data, like raw data? I'm like, no, it's always good. Yeah, this is what the data say. Like, no, they don't. Data
1: can't speak. (laughs) They, They don't do anything that we don't make them do.
4: We right. we so. actually create them. We fabricate them out of out of whole cloth, and you know sometimes that's very useful. But oftentimes it's just so many layers of like mystification. It's like um, ventriloquy. Yeah.
2: Yes. You know, yes, like you way. make the data talk, and you say, "I'm not saying that. The data's saying that. It's not that <laughs> me that's being racist. It's the dummy you, that's being who are racist. Who you calling a dummy? Right, I, the, I, he's the dummy. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's, that's the that's the game here." With the data, always.
1: I I also grew up in an era where um, ventriloquism was actually like a like evening draw, like an e- like evening like a evening thing. thing. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, yes, yes, yes. Like Lester, yes. <laughs> uh-
2: <laughs> but no, I really do think it like kind of speaks to, I don't know, it, like I was just thinking back to the early days of the pandemic right and and i think you did have that pundit response of like oh well like you're just calling everything neoliberalism because i think it was obvious that in some ways we were seeing like both demand for a certain political response that could result in in funding public health and expanding Mm -hmm. its mandate um And the mandate of public health historically has gotten smaller and smaller and smaller. But more importantly, it's gotten less and less politicized, actually. It's been, no, you don't deal with politics anymore. No, you don't really deal with poverty anymore. No, you don't really advocate for structural change anymore. Like, now you just do this. Here are the sort Mm -hmm. of six pillars of public health, right? And so you have these kind of moments where it's like almost like what's being debated is like, do we turn back? Do we expand the mandate? Do we go back to some of these old models of public health? And and the reason why being because neoliberalism has sort of stripped these things out. And if we went back to these old models, we'd at least have some, you know, something to work with rather than a pile of useless contracts with third party contractors to sort of outsource everything. And like in, in, in some ways, I think That kind of response of like, oh, you just call everything neoliberalism really kind of comes out of an anxiety of like, well, could we have made a mistake all these years with the way (laughs) that we've been managing (laughs) health? And I I think it was like very much in the public consciousness because of the discussion around Medicare for all, which when, you know, the election sort of played out the way it did in the United States and the left was like, okay, well, my the response, the sort of the mainstream left was like the response to Bernie coming out of the race was like, well, Medicare for all is never going to fucking happen now. And Mm -hmm. you sort of see it all drop out and you start to see how, yes, we see these sort of short term discussions about expanding the mandate of public health and sort of looking back to some of these things like, you know, do we want to sort of think about intervening in poverty through public health, you know, but Mm -hmm. that quickly goes away and is sort of subsumed by the beginning of the production of of the normalization norms, you know, of of the we see the discussion around needing to go back to to normal as a pressing temporal concern, and that there's a sort of one direction towards normal emerge. And in that moment, I think it really actually sort of effectively kind of squashed out the last little bit of life of kind of the conversation around, like, do, do we actually want to do public health for real? Like maybe we want to actually.
1: Yeah. So I have a few thoughts. Um, I'm trying to think of where to begin because there are a few points that um, I'm trying to kind of think through. The first is I'll call it counterpoint. Mm. I think that public health mandate has expanded. Mm -hmm. I just think, I don't think it contracted, but I don't think that the infrastructures of various kinds to support that extension or that expansion has occurred. And let me tell you what I mean by that. And because I do think that you are right about this depoliticizing tendency of public health. So I don't mean that the mandate that includes an explicit nod to politics and a particular kind of politics because my politics in public health would be very much radical and left and about all of the things that you talked about structurally. Now, what it, what I'm thinking uh, is its expansion is, I'm sure you know and have heard like a million times, particularly when the APHA got involved, they started calling racism a public health threat.
3: Mm-hmm. Remember that? <laughs>
1: and then they were like, police violence is a public health threat but they only meant it in so far as well no let me let me let me step back a second but what does that mean when you have no robust infrastructure. Right. It, I think it actually means yep. we want to depoliticize this thing. We want to call it right. public health yes. so we don't oh. actually have to address the thing that it
4: is. We want to call it public health so that we can deal with it through these little one-off interventions. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So you can have an
1: intervention. A and and, and what, what can you do with very little money? Yep. <laughs> like, it's like, In what? six months. What? What's our most cost-effective time-delimited way of addressing this problem? I know we'll just say racism is a public health threat. But what does that mean? I don't
4: know. Does it mean we collect more data?
1: Yes, yes.
4: Yeah, there's an oh. there's such an interesting like antinomy I think between like what what's really going on, I think which I think you're exactly right, you know, that public health's like sort of purview is expanding, but it's all just a house of cards. But like what what it seems like the advocacy, what like the public, certainly what I really wanted when I'm saying, you know, when I say racism is a public health issue, what I mean is like, let's get this infrastructure. You know what I mean? Like, let's actually try to do this. Like, let's make these investments. Let's Um, think about
1: race, what it means. Yes. Let's let's see what it does, like how it actually manifests in inequality, injustice terrible health outcomes, et cetera, right? Like it means really fucking grappling with what it means to say racism is X or racism exists and has, and and is embodied and, and, and manifests in certain ways, right? Like that is the thing is like, they don't want you to do that. And, no. and so I'll tell you where this <laughs> came from though. So I was like, so I, I, <laughs> Oh, I probably have to write this talk I've been eventually. Um, I'm giving a talk on Friday, I'm like I have to write it. <laughs> um, and so there's this um relatable. But one of the talks I had been giving during the this this long pandemic is about this exhibit in the CDC Museum, which frankly, like I didn't see it until like the third or fourth time I went in a couple of years, and I was and I'd been having conversations with the curator and she kept talking about like the Atlanta child murders. And at first I thought it was just like this really weird quirk of her, like, you know, whatever. And so I was like, why should you talking about the Atlanta child murder- murders? Everyone knows about them. But I didn't realize at the time, like the first time we talked, that the CDC had an active role or at least presents itself as having had an active role in identifying or at least um, in the investigation, I won't say in in, identifying the killer, because as you very well know, public health or epidemiology doesn't really have the tools to go, ah, this is the killer. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. It's not. They may call themselves disease detectives, but no, um, (laughs) that's not what's happening. And so, of course, like the way they describe it in the. So I go there and I go to the part of and I'm just sort of hanging out in the permanent exhibit and I go, oh, that's what she's talking about. Like they literally have a place in the exhibit that is like, this is about the time that the CDC helped the, the Atlanta Police Department. And they, you know, and they have like the Fulton County Department of Health involved and which is the only way they could have been invited, right? They had to actually have a formal invitation for Fulton County Health Department and then Fulton County Health Department's liaising with Atlanta uh, police. And so what they do is they kind of, they do this like, it's so interesting. They, they basically investigate it like it's a food uh, foodborne, Oh, my God. Yeah, I know. When I talked to the EIS, I talked to the EIS officers like 40 years later and they were like, what the fuck are we doing? (laughs) (laughs) And and so for reference, for people who don't know, Atlanta child murders, this was between 1979, 1981, uh, two dozen black children between the ages of nine and 14 disappeared and or were murdered. And it haunted the region. It haunted the nation. And there's a lot, go- there was a lot going on. And so one of the EIS officers had been reading the paper, reading in the paper, he says, around the time of his child's bris, and he says, he read, he read the paper, he couldn't sleep that night, because they kept saying, oh, uh, we still don't know anything about who's killing these children. We, we, we even a, a psychic just came to town because she has, she says she has some information to share, you know, like, it's all this, like, Detroit police are coming. In fact, the guy who was in Beverly Hills Cop as the captain to Eddie Murphy's character. Oh my well, God. He was a police officer, actually, and he <laughs> came. Like, I know. So anyway, the investigation that they conducted was, yes, investigating it like it's a, but they were basically trying to find out what characteristics of the children made them susceptible <laughs> to um, being kidnapped
4: or killed. Yeah. Case control, right? They, like, That's
1: they public health for you.
4: Congratulations,
1: yeah. <laughs> and so, obviously, this is about blaming <sighs> the families and the children in in some ways. So, you know, there's all this other like really weird, racist kind of stuff, which I talked to them about. I talked to each the people that were still around, um, and by around I mean alive and are willing to talk. And you know, it's really interesting to hear them reflect upon their own, because you know, of course. They all, uh, with the exception of one, they all kept their files. Went digging around before our conversation, and they were just like, "Whoa, what, what are we doing?" <laughs> in retrospect, right? Like, um, had, with all of the stuff under the belt. Um, anyway, the, the point being, there is a point to this story. Um, in the exhibit, they also say they 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 sort of they had so it's it's an exhibit that shows like clippings from that the JAMA article that they wrote on the basis of this, these data. So they put the paper up, they have um, information from news, they have like pictures from Newsweek and all of the people who covered this relationship, this collaboration. And then on the other side, the other part of this exhibit is, this is when the CDC really got to do injury prevention and violence.
2: Oh my God. Wow,
1: and that's how they started the center, which became an institute. Yeah, so they're kind. I mean, uh no, wow. center. This is, and so they taught. They said well, first it was a branch, and then it was. A, and I was like, what? You know, I, I was looking at this timeline, and I was like, this is interesting. They see themselves as having built the institution, like sort of expanded the mandate of the institution on the basis of this involvement with the police in this case, where actually they did very little in building knowledge about that 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 well frankly that families wanted which was where are our children and who did this mm-hmm. um and 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 who in our community is killing us
3: mm-hmm.
1: and so there's a there's this and this so this is kind of like what I'm pointing to when I say oh no like the mandate continues to expand yeah. and, and so at the time and, so only a couple of years before that, Bill Fahey, I don't know if you know who he is, um, but he's sort of like, he's sort of global health royalty. He's probably hitting his 90s now. Um, he's a very tall man. That's like the one thing people always say about him. And the reason most people know this is because he was part of the um, smallpox eradication effort. Mm. So he's a he's a member of the Order of the Bifurcated Needle. Um, yeah. And so for people who don't know, smallpox, I don't, I don't, <laughs> the, the smallpox. The smallpox vaccine was actually delivered through a bifurcated needle.
4: Ah, I didn't know that. I had no clue. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's why people have that scar. Um, That makes sense. And (laughs) I know it's just sort of like they just sort of poke them with this thing. And these guys and they were guys, um, all guys, um, called themselves the Order of the Bifurcated Needle. Um, It was sort of an inside joke, but they did have certificates. I saw them.
2: Oh, my (laughs) God. And little pins
1: that are like little like bent smallpox needles
2: I hope one uh, of uh, Jeff Zients's like execute, execute, execute shirts ends up in the CDC History Museum when they do their COVID exhibit <laughs> in like 100 years Maybe like, that blanket that his staff made him with his COVID-19 plan on it maybe that oh. would be a part of it <laughs>
4: It'll Maybe appear they at like it. the Exxon, the Exxon Center at CDC. <laughs> <You> know, <like. laughs>
1: sponsored by the like, Exxon Mobile um, but they yeah, so it's like, um, so anyway, Bill Fage had was the director of the CDC at the time. And you know he's he, actually, so I'd say most people who knew him know, no, he's still alive. know him, say, oh, he's this wonderful, generous you know, wonderful, perfect guy. So sweet. Um, Christian ethic, blah, blah, blah. And in fact, most, a lot of the guys that I know from the order of, from the order were like the kids of missionaries or whatever. Interesting. Yeah. It's a very interesting thing. It's like a bunch of medical doctors who were missionary kids and, um, he was the director and he had been So there are two things that were happening at the time that I think are really important, at least for, for your, your purposes. And those two things were, And this is in this book called Sentinel Sentinels for Health by Etheridge. It's a very like weird congratulatory historical accounting of the CDC that you can only read if you're willing to like be critical. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um,
1: But 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 one of the things you know she talks about is Feige was super interested in he had sort of two things on his plate in the mid-70s. One one of those things was how do you continue CDC, uh, basically how does CDC continue to exist in this sort of wide range of agencies that address health, right? So so it meant defining what public health was like in a, in a real way um, and what, what it ended up being, you know, in its way of trying to distinguish itself from the NIH, for example, it was like, well, actually we do, we don't, they do all this sort of clinical lab stuff, basic science. We are the prevention people which is like, oh, so that's when you start getting that, the idea that maybe they're gonna start adding prevention to their name or whatever, like they're just, right? So that's one piece. So distinguishing its mission from all the other agencies so that it doesn't like get eradicated like smallpox. And then the the second piece is, I want us to address some of the social things. Um, And I particularly want us to think about violence and conflict and every time he put that up for, for discussion, they were like Congress was like, no, no, that's just dumb. Right? Like that, that's not like what if that's not health. And everyone's like, well, you know, violence equals injury equals death. And they're like, oh, okay. Um, and so this this case, there so so one of the things I didn't say is in addition to having um EI for EIS officers having an invitation from a health a health department, they also have to um in in this case. They wanted buy-in from so they these these this EIS officer went to his boss, who then went straight to Bill Fahey. Like there was that there was no like chain of command. It went straight to the top and said, "Can we do this?" And he was like, "Absolutely, yes." And I I sense that he saw this involvement, you know, applying public health tools, epidemiology, to this kind of what's essentially, you know, a, a, I mean, we'll call it a social problem, we'll call, I don't know what to call it, and and sort of transforming it into a sort of technocratic problem mm-hmm. that could be handled using epidemiological mm-hmm. public health methods. And so, and in fact, one thing that I found really interesting when I was going through the the sort of the newspaper archives was when they talked to the public safety commissioner, whatever his his title was. Famous guy. He ended up becoming the police chief of another department. When they um, talked to him and they said, "Well, how do you feel about the CTC being involved?" And he says, "Well, I don't really see how their methods are any different from ours." And every time I read that line, I'm like, "Whoa!" Yeah. <laughs> I, I find I find that both troubling and but also reassuring because I'm like, "Oh, I, I think my instinct was right." You know, like yeah. my 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 instinct regarding um, sort of i guess perceptions of 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 instig- investigational practices and tools but also a framing right mm-hmm. like how do they see themselves as comparable or as 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 so similar as to kind of to be sort of compatible um investigators in this case um even though i think the police were actually obviously more skeptical of the cdc than you know, then vice versa, right? Like, I don't get the sense that, or at least I, maybe I should put it this way the white men who were involved were not as suspicious as the, the white woman who was like, well, <laughs> like, you know, like, like, we have we have a problem here. Um, she had a very different perspective, but I think what it boiled down to was she was actually a lot more aware or attuned to various, like, the politics, various kinds of politics at play in ways that they were not. Um, and a lot of it had to do with how she was treated as an EIS officer in at CDC, how she was treated in the aftermath. So when she moved on to AIDS work in the agency um, and had a lot of her work censored and suppressed in the MMWR. So she had like a very, you know, and and, and I would say there are other people, there was another guy who was sort of in the middle, where like he was very frigging skeptical because he had done work on, he'd actually... Um, also knew about the syphilis stuff, the Tuskegee syphilis stuff, and was like, whoa, they're doing this with malaria too. <laughs> um, that's another story for another day. But, um, but there's, <laughs> I know, I was looking through my notes and I found this transcript and I was like, oh yeah, he has this box of evidence about the CDC <laughs> that he totally just wants to give me. He's like, I'm moving, I'm cleaning out my basement. Do you want these papers incriminating the CDC? <laughs> I was like, I don't know if I need those <laughs> right now. <laughs> I don't want to be that whistleblower right now, like currently. Um, I think all the people are dead, actually, who were involved. Um, so anyway, yeah, that was sort of, <laughs> sort of the the big thing is 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 the I think the mandate expands, but the resources to. Uh, the, and and not just the sort of financial resources but the the the, the sort of intellectual resources to shift to really rethink reconsider what it means to absorb all of these problems into the sort of public health project i think that's sort of the the question on the table
2: mm-hmm. yeah absolutely that was such a fucking fascinating story like <laughs> I think this actually brings me to my next quote of yours that I wanted to pull. Um, this is from an interview you did in, I believe, April, April 29th, 2020, called An Anthropologist's Perspective on COVID-19. And to one of the responses you said, The dystopian version of all of this is that there's a tendency or a possibility of distributing and privatizing risk and surveillance in ways that might not have been imaginable or imagined before this outbreak. Not to end it on a downer, but it's hard to imagine that this equals Medicare for all, social solidarity, unionizing, and adequately valuing caring labor and public services of various kinds. It's hard to imagine the progressive utopia that could emerge from this, but I am hopeful we can do this. Oh. So <laughs> did I, I? I also didn't end on a downer. That's cool. <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't, but I, I, you know, and also in this elephant interview, you do talk about the idea of returning to sort of old models of community-centered health and and ways of, like, actually thinking through some of these problems that if we were to not just, like, expand the mandate superficially, never actually giving anyone the resources or using public health towards, like, a redistributive agenda of some kind, you know, that there's a kernel of inspiration there. There's, like, something to be plumbed from looking back at stuff that I think also in the same way that it's been actually very helpful to sort of look back at some of the things that you were thinking about early on in the pandemic. You know, what what, what was on your mind, I think, was really telling this I, this idea also of the securitization being the, the dominant um, priority. Obviously, this is informed by all of the things that we know about global public health. But it's really clear from day one going into COVID, like just how fucked we are based on this, this sort of system as we've set it up. And a lot of that has to do with these economic priorities. So, you know, as we've seen COVID ro- sort of normalize, if we've seen like protections rolled back and we've seen folks, especially in the workplace, really kind of lose any agency or control over their exposure, the kind of economic framework of COVID is really right now in a similar way to sort of how we see priorities organized in nursing homes or any sort of fiscal federalist scheme where we do a public-private partnership in the United States giving out contracts to manage something health-related, or in the kind of global contract management where you have sort of these NGOs operating as making these like health uh, threats available for as like opportunities to build American wealth as the priority is basically what I'm trying to say. And so, mm. you know, that is like the agenda number one. And often the kind of like health framework ends up being the justification for what ultimately becomes really wealth first, health second. And I think it's just really useful. So to sort of look back at, we know the things that we're really gonna, fuck us up in COVID. And we've seen those things play out pretty textbook. And it was even still very controversial, though, for like Artie and I to say in the beginning of our book, like we haven't learned lessons from COVID. Everybody was like very quick to pat themselves on the back before 2020 was even over in December of 2020 going, we've learned the lessons from COVID. This is great. We're walking into a bright new future.
1: I even talked to this friend who had Ebola. Uh, He was actually an American who had Ebola. And... He'd lived in Liberia for a while, and that's how he ended up getting it, actually. Um he was oddly freelancing um, for, for a, na- a national news network, um, a US national news network that shall remain nameless, but is Googleable. Um <laughs> and, you know, he, he was saying that he was talking about how folks that he had he'd encountered in Liberia, like one of the reasons that they were able to bring Ebola down wasn't just because they had excellent, you know, sort of improved care and treatment and or isolation and quarantine, whatever, you know, it was, it was the fact that people sort of decided once they knew what they needed to do, they did it, right? So they were like, oh, if, if somebody gets sick, we um, send them to the hospital. Um, but we have to make sure that when they go to the hospital, it's a good one. And, it, and, you know, and that it's properly equipped. But when people were actually having to care for loved ones at home, they were using PPE, Mm -hmm. Um, they were, they had, they, or they were, you know, using community care, um, people who were not able to move about because they were sick, they got food, you know? And so he's like, it's, he was like, it's really interesting when I talk to other, you know, other reporters and say, yeah, like we can do this as various communities can do this. He said, they all looked at him like he was crazy. Like, oh, that you, you were in this utopian West African, you know, West African utopia. And I'm like, no, actually like, (laughs) You know, I, you know, and I, and I remember saying, you know, I live in a neighborhood or at the time I lived in a neighborhood on the South side where actually like, I heard about people sort of taking the name, making sure that certain elders were checked up on that they had groceries. And then we started getting these text messages from the city, but all of them were about them closing bridges over because of protests or whatever. And it was like, there's a curfew tonight. Everybody head home. And I was like, how easy would it have been for them to, like, also have pushed a message through saying, and this is how you prevent COVID. And, and here is a place to get care. And here are places to get testing. You know, like all of these things that could have been really useful information at the time. But but my point was that that there there was possibility there. Um, some of us were taking care of each other. And, you know, I was really impressed by some of the stuff that New York city did because they were bearing the brunt pretty early. You know, the city was very much like, Oh, stay home. We'll bring people through. Um, We'll, we'll send food. We'll, you know, and with every check you get, you get tests and you, you know, with every check you get this, right. Mm -hmm. It it was, and even, um, you know, I'm going to plug partners in health again. Whatever one thinks about them. <laughs> but there was a, a I remember when I was having that contact tracing conversation with them, they said, oh, um, you know, we kept doing studies. We basically found out that if we just had contact tracing as our like phone ID, <laughs> a caller ID, then nobody would pick up the phone. But if we said partners or health or whatever they were. Um, which people then associated with, oh, these are the people who gave us the food vouchers, the tests, the you know, like Mm the home care kit. Mm -hmm. They really, you know, sort of like, oh, people like when they uh, sort of know that you're just calling to check up on them to make sure they're okay and not to police them. Mm
4: -hmm.
1: It's a very different kind of relationship that's happening. And so I, you know, I was at the time sort of going, oh, like there's that possibility. Mm -hmm. Like I'm seeing glimmers of what it could look like if that if if care was was taking precedent over isolation, um, prevention, infection, policing, um, whatever, because, I mean, the fact of the matter is, is contact tracing does look like police work. Mm -hmm. Um, That's just the way it is um when when there's a wedding outbreak everyone the first the health department's like okay you know where did you go who did you see you're gonna have to stay around in town until we finish investigating this Uh, or whatever right i watch a lot of british police procedurals so um, don't don't go out of town now pet so (laughs) um and so i was seeing those glimmers Mm -hmm. i was seeing And, and I, you know what, I actually, I had this conversation with a, a, of all people, an ophthalmologist who was interviewing for a job and I, and I talked to him and it was really fascinating to hear him say, he's also a social scientist. (laughs) He said, now, when I was in training, we were just sort of miserable, overworked, overtired, um, afraid to complain. He says, but I don't think I've seen a more, um, a, a group of residents who are so, who are so conscious of the fact that they are workers and workers first.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: He's like, never have I seen, usually he's like, never have I seen this. Like I've been, you know, I went through the process. I've been doing this for a few years. And this is, he's like, this, this is the first time that I've seen a bunch of, you know, especially like I'd say in his, the group of students that he was involved with he's sort of privileged entitled folks who are you know look basically just enduring this until they hit their hit pay dirt right, <laughs> and 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 saying like yeah we are workers yeah and we we need protections we have rights and we can't provide care if we're tired if we're overworked if we're bullied, mm-hmm. so yeah I would say in general we have this we have I think a few things happening we have the yes these sort of weird privatization surveillance stuff. Um, but we're also seeing a lot more pushback on the questions of carcerality, of, of, of mm-hmm. isolation, of, of policing, of, 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 of exploitation, exploitation of work. You know, we, we have some of that pushback that's happening. Um, and so that's also like where I'm seeing these little, you know, points of tension, like points of, of conflict, but points, which mean, I also think you, um, spaces and possibilities of 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 changing things
4: just to kind of like I guess circle this conversation back to where we started I really like we can do this as kind of the antidote to like the implicit education sort of banking model that's built Mm -hmm. into how we understand Mm -hmm. you know public health interventions and public health communications and um you know, I I have a, a little bit of like a labor organizing background and like, you know, there's this concept in labor organizing of like the the quote unquote whole worker. You know what I mean? Like you're not just mm-hmm. organizing someone in their in their work site, like you're organizing a person, right, who's embedded in this, like you say, you know, this local moral economy, like all these social relationships, like who have different, you know, stakes and concerns and stuff. And um, it's very interesting because, you know, on the one hand, like public health really tends toward individualization, particularly of risk, like individualization and and privatization of of risk. But on the other hand, I think public health really fails in like seeing people as anything other than just like discrete. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like discrete data (laughs) points, like Cartesian Mm -hmm. figures, like in a, in a plane or something. Um, And so I think there is a ton, like there's a ton of potential there which is how I optimistically like choose to see it because I think almost no one in public health sees the potential of organizing the organizing that people do, you know what I mean? Undirected Mm -hmm. by like an NGO when, you know, for example, like the infrastructure really fails them or something like that. Um, But those, those, you know, that type of organizing, you know, like we can do this, that type of organizing really necessitates deep deep engagement and understanding of power you know like of the economic stakes like of the political landscape like all this stuff that is really hard you know and like really um really contested I guess I guess this is all to say like I I share some of this hopefulness but Mm -hmm. you know recognizing the scale of the challenge is also recognizing like the potential for for better yeah
2: yeah
1: absolutely I do wonder and imagine, I guess I wonder about and imagine, um, again, like a, a recentering of the possibility of care. What would that look like in terms of governance? Um, what does it look like in terms of distribution? And what is, I mean, so I, I keep thinking about like, what is that? Yeah, I have been thinking a lot about what that looks like, especially in the past year as I've been sort of forced to kind of reckon with the legacy of the the people Um, and the institutions that I think we're trying to model that for us. So, you know, for me, it's all, it's about somebody thinking that it is possible to care for people, (laughs) you know, and Mm -hmm. it sounds like very rudimentary and it sounds very basic, but it's It's a huge idea at the same time. (laughs) Right. And it's, but it's, but, but I found that, that the sort of the carelessness, the, the lack of care, is 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 a feature of our current sort of political moment, and and I don't, you know, part of me feels like it's it's just sort of burnout <laughs> from from like screaming for care for every, you know, like everybody sort of wanting that. But what I mean, but what does that look like on at scale? And at scale, that means we have to rethink our relation to to work. We have to rethink our relation to to capital. We have to rethink art or even mediated through capital mm-hmm. I think um and our obligations to each other mm-hmm. and in some ways I wondered if a pandemic would engender those things even though I was suspicious that they wouldn't <laughs> um but I also felt like they would it would definitely bring to into relief some of those things for for a for those of us who hadn't been forced to think about it or compelled to think about it, so as I was saying before, it's you know these people who are suddenly realizing that they're workers mm-hmm. um, and organizing around that mm-hmm. fact. Um, it then becomes people sort of launching critique of relations mediated through capital. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I I and I, and I um, I'm going to say one last thing about my 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 dearly departed friend Paul Farmer you know, he, he actually had this really interesting turn of phrase that I use a a little bit, you know, socialized for scarcity. (laughs) He's basically saying austerity isn't just something that's happening, right? Like it's not just something that that the government does and, and, and reveals itself through like budget cuts, right? Um, Or, but it's also that we kind of buy into the fact that things are scarce. Like we buy into scarcity. We actively like use that as a framework for the decisions that we make, yeah. And so, what happens in places where they say, "Oh, well, yeah, it'd be great if we had cancer care here, but these people are poor and we don't have enough money. Why don't we? All, why don't we institute just screening for cancer? Because mm-hmm. that's cheap. Like if you can, you know. And so, and there's a kind of, or you know, like institute a, a like map, like a self-examination, breast examination protocol
4: mm-hmm.
1: like let's 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 go around and educate people for like love to do months. an
4: education program <laughs>
1: right so there's that you know i actually like that phrase because it 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 basically sort of inserts the 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 social back yeah. into this the sort of like the people and the practices and the motivations and the intentions from agency essentially back into this question of austerity um and, you know, that's what an anthropologist should do, actually, is to say, <laughs> okay, we're talking about austerity, but what does it mean? Like, what does it mm-hmm. mean in practice? What does it sort of force us to do, compel us to do?
2: Yeah. No, and I mean, I think it's, it's one of the the common complaints that, like, I, <laughs> I get about our work is, like, oh, death panel is so depressing. Like, how could you talk about all of this stuff all of the time and how could you even just spend all this time sort of digging into the crap and critiquing and and it's like i don't know i find a lot of beauty in being able to tease out and identify and name something like the idea of people being socialized for scarcity or like i've used the phrase in the past like austerity mindset playing off of like the ways that we like brand personalities and go-getter attitudes right like it's a it's really austerity is an idea it's an ideology about a a type of political will that we have available to us in in so many ways and yeah yeah, you could say like death panel covers a lot of depressing shit but you could also say that what we're doing is we're trying to like make material some of these decisions and give people a chance to plug in or or learn from or move beyond some of these austerity mindsets that like We all have even in our interpersonal relationships to each other, like, you know, people succeed and and you don't necessarily feel good for them, even if you love the person, right? Like you feel jealous and like that's an austerity logic because you're jealous because you think that that person and succeeding and getting attention might have some of that care that we all want now, right? Because we're told like you just have to work hard enough and you'll get there. You'll you'll become rich and you'll get the care. Right. And. Mm -hmm. And part of that, part of, like, moving beyond that requires us to sort of embrace our own desires for care and say, like, we deserve, we actually deserve it. Um, We don't need to earn it. And we can do it. It's just simply prohibited by the way that we look at the world and have decided to construct certain systems, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah, how do we? And I mean, I think to some extent, and
1: I and I I've been saying this for a very long time. I do think that the critique, that teasing out that you're talking about, does lend itself to reimagining a different, possible, like a different absolutely. world, absolutely. Like there's no way that you can um, reimagine <laughs> something without knowing, and knowing how you know. It's like it's like um, in those restaurants where you know those sort of like high end restaurants where the person deconstructs <laughs> <Like, laughs> deconstructed apple pie. Yeah, you have to know what apple pie was like before yeah. to be able to, to offer it in a new <laughs> special way, don't you? You have to. It's you have to have some kind of buttery crust, and you have to have some kind of apple cooked, <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> but it, 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 you know, however you choose to deconstruct it or even just sort of present its essence on the plate, <laughs> you know, it means something. Mm-hmm. Just, I'm, I'm like, yeah, it's, it's now Apple foam.
4: <laughs> always
1: foams. With, it's always a foam. Like with, with like a little crispy piece of pastry.
4: <laughs> then there's just a pile of arsenic dust in a nod to the apple seeds. And because this is the US. <laughs> oh, that's
1: so funny. There's some est- there's some estrogen destroying hormone. Uh, some cool. glyphosate. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah I mean so so yeah I just don't I, I I I worry about people who say oh that's critique it's like yeah the critique if you don't do critique there's no way you can think better I mean yeah or or imagine better you have different to, you
4: have to be able to name the problem and understand the stakes of it to have any hope of intervening in it mm-hmm. I don't
2: want to keep you too much longer but this has been so much fun I really really appreciate you coming on today when I was like putting together questions I ended up having like starting with 25 and like having to seriously (gasps) pare down from there so there are obviously like a lot of things that you could always come on the show to talk about so anytime you're welcome (laughs) to come hang um open invitation I hope you do this was really fun (laughs) this was so fun it was such a really wonderful time to get a chance to meet you finally too
1: yeah, it's really fun. I, I enjoy I enjoyed it. I, I, I read the Health Communism book, went to the book club. Oh, that's so cool. And and I, I really appreciated it. I had to explain things to people though, because you know people get like <laughs> they're like, But we were expecting solutions. <laughs> oh my god. A lot of people were like, Your
2: chapters don't end with policy recommendations no and I was like (laughs) well let me tell you I was like
1: let me point to the intentions right here
2: (laughs) (laughs) well thank you I appreciate (laughs) it well Adia thank you so much for coming on it was such an honor to have you finally on the show and to have you join us today patrons thank you so much for your support we couldn't do any of this without you we'll catch you later in the week in the main feed as always Medicare for all now solidarity forever
3: Alive another week. Are people in pain where you are? Do they stand out from the tent? Like we did in Tokyo, singing la Hoola. Oh no